She cannot figure out how to rectify it. Nor indeed should she, as Dr. Bailey has confirmed. If only she could take her younger self in hand and convince her to pay attention to the signs all around her, the sudden tempests and long absences and misunderstandings that revealed with all the subtlety of a thunderclap that Byron would make a very poor husband. But even if she could, she knows her words would be a waste of breath. From the earliest days of their courtship, caught up in the heady intoxication of a blossoming romance with the greatest poet of the age, that self-possessed, precociously intellectual heiress had willfully ignored anything that warned of impending doom. And there had been many such warnings. She first observed George Gordon, 6th Lord Byron, in March 1812, at a party given by Lady Caroline Lamb, the beautiful, erratic daughter-in-law of her aunt, Lady Melbourne. Within days of embarking upon her first London season, Annabella had learned that Byron was the most sought-after guest at any gathering, thanks to the sudden, excessive fame that had followed the unprecedented success of his poem, Child Harold's Pilgrimage, two brilliant cantos published with the tantalizing hint that he might compose more if they were well received. All eyes followed him when he entered a room, and murmurs of anticipation swept along in his wake. He was a genius, some whispered in awe. He was a libertine, said others, looking scandalized, but often no less admiring. Annabella observed all this commotion with the same studious detachment she applied to any natural science. She was quite the fashion herself that spring, graceful and pretty at nineteen, with long, glossy brown hair, clear blue eyes, creamy fair skin, and a petite, well-shaped figure. She had received an excellent classical education, and in mathematics, science, and languages, she was regarded as a prodigy, and not only by her doting parents, who cherished her as an only daughter born long after they had given up hope of children. In her manner, she was frank and articulate, without any of the flighty airs other young ladies assumed, and she was known for being calm, strong-minded, pious, and concerned about the plight of the working poor. The fact that she was descended from Henry VII and stood to inherit a substantial fortune only added to her charms, and she was not surprised to find herself attracting the attention of many worthy suitors. That fateful morning at Melbourne House, Annabella studied Lord Byron from across the drawing-room as one would examine any wild, exotic, and possibly dangerous beast— but she did not seek out his acquaintance. I felt no need to make an offering at the shrine of Child Harold, she told her mother afterward, her voice rippling with disdain for the silly young ladies who flung themselves into his path. But it was not only the ladies who venerated him. Young gentlemen glowered, tousled their hair, knotted their neck handkerchiefs at their throats, and left their shirt collars unbuttoned in imitation of their idol. In conversation, 
when they lacked clever observations of their own, they quoted Byron's evocative phrases, nodded sagely, and exchanged significant glances, as if in agreement that nothing more needed to be said. Some, who Annabella knew could not tell the difference between an I am and a dactyl, went about with ink-stained fingers and a distracted air, as if privately conversing with their poetical muse. Byron ignored them, which seemed only to intensify their admiration. Annabella, who had composed verses long before she had ever heard the name Byron, became so annoyed and disgusted with the way they carried on that when she returned home, she took pen in hand and let her feelings burst forth in a poem. The Byromania was both a rebuke and a lament, chiding those who went about smiling, sighing,